Today on Not Sam Wrestling, an entire premium live event called Extreme Rules to go over, the return of Bray Wyatt, and more. This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Oh boy. What a time. Welcome to Not Sam Wrestling. 416, baby. 416. And this is it. So, a lot to get into today. It's going to be a nice, lengthy podcast because a lot to talk about. MJF going to be in studio. But before we get there, Extreme Rules went down over the weekend. And I might say, I, I should have done the research before we signed on today. But I might say, and I say it as a maybe, but with a lot of confidence, that this could be the, the most newsworthy and noteworthy Extreme Rules in the history of that great pay-per-view. I mean, before we even saw what we saw at the end of the show, and we'll get into the end of the show, the premium live event itself, the show from top to bottom, I thought was just about spectacular. On a show, here's what you have to do. If you're running shows where it's like, look, we're going to do big premium live event, pay-per-view, whatever you want to call them, spectaculars. And sometimes our world champion isn't going to be there and isn't going to be defending the title. And on some of those shows, the tag team champions of the world aren't going to be there and aren't going to be defending the titles. The fact is that Extreme Rules went down without the biggest act in the company. The entire bloodline was off the show. There was no, there was a video package promoting Crown Jewel, but there was no real inclusion that I recall of the bloodline on pretty much the entire premium live event. So you've taken yourself, you've, you've, you've lost Randy Orton, you've lost Cody Rhodes all this year, and you don't have the bloodline and still, still, you're putting on a pay-per-view that even if you hadn't had that spectacular ending, people would have gone, man, what a great way to spend a Saturday night. That was an excellent pay-per-view. And I'll tell you why. Because this is this is becoming something that the WWE does regularly. All of a sudden, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, matches and stories have a reason for being are capable of, uh, we are capable of following the rationale behind these matches. And get this, we care. If you look at even how the pay-per-view was blocked out last night, it, it felt like, or Saturday night, it felt like each match was almost its own story section. You know, I, I felt like, and maybe it was just me, but it felt like there was a lot more breathing room between every single match. You know, all premium live events, pay-per-views, whatever, have had those big buffer spots between maybe the the semi-main and the main or, or, or right in the middle of the show or whatever. But I don't remember a show that every single match, to my recollection, had a pretty nice buffer area, whether it was a video package played, it was something that cleansed the palate. And I think that that hasn't happened in the past. 
because we haven't needed it to happen. Because if a match happens, but there's no story that goes along with the match, it's just a match, you don't really need to cleanse the palate between matches. If it's a story that's being told and we get to the conclusion of a story, we're going to want to take a breath and take a beat before the introduction of the next story. And I think that that's the way it feels to me anyway, like these shows are being programmed now. And it was programmed, I thought, to, to excellence on Saturday night. Um, no bad matches. No even mediocre matches. All matches on the show, I thought, were good to great, both from the perspective of just a straight-up athletic match and why is this happening? The story of the match. There was a story of every match. What was it, six matches? And it was all like, yeah, there's some meat on the bone. I jumped on Twitter spaces with Ryan Papola after Extreme Rules. And there weren't any sort of matches where it's like, not that there have been in the past, but there certainly weren't any sort of matches where it's like, okay, let's, uh, let's, let's highlight this, whatever, a athletic moment. or let's, It's all like stories that I'm anxious to talk about. Every single match was a story that I was like, ooh, I can't wait to sink my teeth into this one. You know, you get a great ladder match. Bianca Belair at a very interesting place. I feel like uh, Bianca Belair has been so successful that people aren't looking at her as a newcomer anymore. They're not looking at her as a disruptor anymore, as they were at one point. And now it's almost like Bianca is becoming one of the pillars Bianca is becoming establishment because she is so good. And and I'm I'm starting to see that a little bit in the tea leaves, which I find interesting. But I think that what that does go to prove is how Bianca just continues to improve every single match. It's not even like every single year, every single match, every single time she comes to the table, she knocks people's socks off again to the point where it's almost taken for granted. It's it's pretty it's an it's an incredible thing. That was the first time that the women's championship has been defended in a ladder match, the first women's single ladder match. So Bianca and Bailey tore the house down. I thought that was great. The strap match, I loved the psychology of the strap match. I thought that, well, yes, you might say, well, Carrion shouldn't have needed Scarlet to win, whatever. Carrion and Scarlet are a package. I think that for me, and I said it on the Twitter spaces, the headline would have been, why the Drew made the mistake. Drew made the match. Drew knew there were no disqualifications. Drew knew that Scarlett was there. Scarlett interfered in the beginning of the match. So why would he assume at the end that she wouldn't do it again? Why would he assume that there weren't plans between the two of them? And that's where Drew screwed up. That's the story of that match. Uh, Liv and, and Ronda watching Liv fight her heart out, but just not, uh, competition not being equal. No matter how hard Liv fought, Ronda is one of the greatest to ever do this. It just is what it is. And then there's some shift going on with Liv. I wonder with Liv Morgan if what we're noticing is if you if you go back to the Liv Morgan uh, documentary that Giancarlo did on Peacock now, it was on the WWE Network, I think it was called Live for This, uh, where it kind of chronicles that year and change that Liv Morgan was off TV which we talked about in the in the uh, podcast I did about the reign of live and why uh, fans like her so much. Uh, there was a there was a moment where she was kind of pitching a darker character, 
and we saw, you know, she's like looking at wigs to see if she should dye her hair. She's kind of toying with personality traits. And we just saw it never happen. That documentary is an amazing insight to uh, the creative process at that time through a performer's eyes where all these ideas were going through and there was just, there was a sense of helplessness on the part of Liv Morgan, but also nothing could uh, diminish her spirit. So it's a very good doc if you haven't taken a look at it. But point is, she pitched this sort of darker character in it. And when I'm watching her and she's smiling as she's losing consciousness and losing the women's championship to Ronda. And when Ronda is standing victoriously, Liv still has that kind of, dark, psychotic smile. And Megan Morant did an interview with Liv Morgan backstage after the match. It was not on the pay-per-view, but it was a digital exclusive. And Liv looked like half of mankind, Mick Foley. She was like tucked into a dark corner of one of the, you know, crevices of the arena. Kind of laughing to herself. Or It was maniacal, is what it was. So I think we are gonna, we are gonna see a shift to a new Liv Morgan character which I'm interested to see. I think it'll be fun. And hopefully it is shades of of, of that last, uh, of, of what we saw with Liv on the dock and what she, what she wanted to do. Because I'm interested to see that. Um, of course, the, the trios match, the Brawling Brutes versus Imperium was another, I mean, it's just another one. It's, it's, it's I, I can't, the fights that Imperium and the Brawling Brutes have, the fights that Walter and Seamus have on a very real level. I can't imagine having one of those in my life. I can't imagine leaving one physical confrontation, leaving like either of two those two men do after these physical confrontations. I can't imagine it happening once to me, let alone over and over and over again. I could watch these two teams just destroy each other forever. I like the shift that's being made into the uh, much more heel side of, of Gunther. I think that the WWE is, has sniffed out that Sheamus, uh, the, uh, an appreciation for Sheamus that quite frankly has always been there with like the locker room. You know, I, I, I think people within the business have always felt like Sheamus was a pretty amazing talent. There's, there's a lot of reverence for Sheamus. I feel like fans are really starting to click into that. Lately, I feel like now fans are really starting to go, oh, my God, I had no idea he was this good. They're just realizing every single time that music plays and every single time Seamus steps up to the plate, they're getting their money's worth. And that's the type of thing that's going to make a baby face. So I think the WWE has sensed that and they've decided to really go heavy. You know, I think that's why Gunther uh, pulled out the shillelagh on SmackDown. I think that's why, you know, even though he's uh, he's talking about how much he respects the art of of wrestling and how the mat is sacred, that, you know, maybe that's why uh, he might bend the rules every now and then. There might be some hypocrisy involved in his philosophies. I think that they're trying to really make it clear that Gunther is somebody that you should be booing for two reasons. Number one, they want Gunther to be a villain. And number two, they don't want an appreciation for Gunther to take away from what's going on with Sheamus right now, because Sheamus is truly having a moment. Fight pit match, uh, Cormier coming in and and refereeing, I, you know, I it, just great. It, it was uh, I the run that Rollins is on right now, 
Because ultimately, when you look at the year he's had, right? And it starts with, I would say, Royal Rumble. I don't remember what he did at day one. But at Royal Rumble, he's not able to take the title away from Roman Reigns. Technically, he didn't lose, right? It was a disqualification. Roman didn't beat Seth. But it starts at Rumble. He's not able to take the title away from Roman. Then he goes to WrestleMania, and he loses to Cody. Then he goes to Backlash, and he loses to Cody. Then he goes to Hell in a Cell, and Cody comes out with a torn peck. And Rollins loses to Cody. He gets his win back at, at, at Clash at the Castle, but ultimately, he loses this rivalry with Riddle, in my opinion, by losing in the fight pit. I mean, that is five massive pay-per-view losses in 10 months, less than 10 months, in nine months. And I don't think Rollins has ever been hotter. That's how good Rollins is. He has lost the vast majority, or not won, the vast majority of his big matches on pay-per-view, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. Because Rollins is that good. Hopefully the the W will 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 push Riddle into a, a different space where people start to look at him as a main event guy. But I mean, I think I I, I hope tonight, Monday, that that Rollins walks out of there with the United States Championship. Now, uh, in terms of matches, for me, I saved the best for last. Edge versus Finn Balor, I quit was maybe the edge match that I've been looking for since he returned to WWE. I think that was what I was looking for when he went to WrestleMania with with Randy Orton, when he had his Roman Reigns matches, whatever. This is the quintessential Edge's return run match. When people go... Talk to me about Edge's return. I go, let's watch the match with Finn Balor. Because this match was incredible. And it's even more incredible based on the fact that a lot of fans poo-pooed the Judgment Day. That the Judgment Day has been working from a deficit for a long time. ever Really since they turned on Edge, at least. And arguably before that, the Judgment Day has been working from a deficit. And they have somehow, with Edge managed to convince the world that they are indeed an absolutely main event faction. Uh, Watching so many things happen and so many different possibilities come from this. Watching Dominic truly put hands on his father. Michael Cole reacting, that that, that somebody needs to smack that kid. Oh, by the way, talking about saving the best for last, I have been on this show so many times talking about how Michael Cole is the GOAT when it comes to wrestling play-by-play. That Michael Cole is the most underappreciated wrestling broadcaster in the history of the industry. Michael Cole somehow leveled up again. Because what he did last night, not only being in the moment, like at the end of the show, are we still on the air? Not only translating the drama of these stories 
so that as you're watching these stories unfold, you have Michael Cole being the, the, the conductor of an orchestra, which is the audience, and, explain, and, and, and just breaking down that emotion that we're all feeling and why, why we're all feeling it, heightening the emotion that's being played out through the physicality in the ring, bringing up history. You know how big I popped for that reference to Sting versus Vader that Michael Cole dropped? Oh, listen to him on SmackDown, man. Now, he is just, he's, he's, I've, I've witnessed him leveling up multiple times. Cole leveled up again on Saturday night. But this edge, and I noticed it big in the edge Finn Balor match. Because it turned into a full-on movie. I felt all the emotions, and act one, act two, act three. I felt all the emotions that I did in a movie on the screen. I loved Finn Balor coming out with that Yeezus-era Kanye West mask that covered his whole face. And I'll tell you why. Because Finn Balor, as the prince, Finn Balor as a badass is awesome. The times that Finn Balor has not lived up to what I think his potential is are all the times when he comes out to the ring smiling. Somebody at some point told Finn Balor to smile. And when Finn Balor is smiling, he's not as good of a Finn Balor as he could be by a mile. So the fact that Finn Balor wears a mask to the ring that now covers his whole face, as if to say, not only am I not smiling, I am so uninterested with drawing you people in. I am so uninterested with anything but what I do in the ring, representing who I am as a performer, that I'm not even going to let you see my face. Brilliant, brilliant. The deeper meaning of Finn Balor's mask. I went for the ride, dude. I've been watching wrestling well over 30 years. And I went for the ride. I sat there thinking, oh, this is where Edge comes back. Oh, this is where they come back. And then to see at the end, to see Rhea Ripley getting all these moments, Beth comes out. To see Edge get revenge on Dominic. To see Rhea and Beth go toe-to-toe. And then finally to watch Edge have to quit to protect his wife because he's a good man. And the Judgment Day cave her head in with a pair of chairs, even though they didn't have to because they're that methodically evil. Ugh. So good. It was a movie. It was a story. And if you watch that match and you're not on board with the Judgment Day, Edge, Rey Mysterio story, I don't know what to tell you. Now, the Judgment Day, we've got Edge... Priest, Dominic, Rhea. Over on the other side, you've got Edge, Ray, now Beth. I'm assuming you're going to add AJ to that mix. But the way they're saying AJ doesn't have any friends, it almost feels like they're going to bring the Good Brothers back. I keep feeling like we're going to see the Good Brothers come back and the OC reunite in this new WWE. And if that's the case... Now we're outnumbering Judgment Day. So is it maybe some kind of a 
triple threat activity. Maybe that's what war games will be. Maybe it'll be the OC versus Edge, Ray, and Riddle. I don't know. Lashley, I don't know. Versus the Judgment Day. And then later on on the Survivor Series card, Beth versus Rhea. I don't know. There's a lot of directions we could go in. A lot of directions we could go in. But let's talk about the direction that everybody's talking about right now. Let's talk about what happened at the end of Extreme Rules and the return of Bray Wyatt to the WWE after weeks and weeks and weeks of white rabbit clues, of, of hints, of teases that the white rabbit is coming. It was pretty much confirmed on SmackDown. Not only did you get the QR code on the microphone as Triple H opened the show, but for the first time, White Rabbit Clues actually aired on television and it was decoded and it said, okay, we're done messing around. The White Rabbit arrives tomorrow, as of Friday, tomorrow at Extreme Rules. So it's not even just tomorrow. What's tomorrow? Oh, Extreme Rules. Nothing left up to mystery. And there were people that were ready for it when, when, Riddle and Rollins started their match. Chance of We Want Wyatt started ringing through the uh, arena in Philadelphia. That said, I thought that those chants died down very quickly, which is a credit to Riddle and Rollins. Vintage Triple H. As Riddle is walking down the aisle, the copyright stamp shows up in the left-hand corner of your television screen. But then the lights go out. Usually that means the show's over, but then the lights go out and we have a Steve Jobs and one more thing, moment. The type of moment that we used to get on every single NXT takeover. Ain't no question about who's in charge of the storytelling these days. But the lights go down. Everybody realizes what's happening. There's this amazing reaction. Everybody starts putting up their phones and the, and the lights start shining everywhere. And then you hear this, this haunting, haunting version of he's got the whole world in his hands. It's the song that we've heard Bray Wyatt sing so often. It's the song that we, we heard Bray Wyatt and the children sing to John Cena at one point early in Bray Wyatt's WWE career. And spotlights start going through the arena. First, we see Huskus, the pig boy, in human form for the first time. Not a puppet. A human version of Huskus standing in the arena. Then the lights go off again. Then another spotlight comes on. And we see a human version of Mercy the Buzzard. Spotlight goes off again. Another spotlight comes on. Another part of the arena. Ramblin' Rabbit is there. A human version of Ramblin' Rabbit. Down goes the spotlight, another spotlight. There's Abby the Witch. We go to the commentary table. The Fiend's burned mask is on the top of the table that Michael Cole and Corey Graves are still sitting at, and they dash out of there. They get that. What is that? They get out of there. They don't know how that got there. And then finally, the final spotlight comes on, and we see The Fiend. And the place goes nuts when we see The Fiend. But that wasn't the reveal. 
because then we go to the video. We see a physical door that looks like a, a swamp door. That's what it looked like to me. And we go up to the Tron and we see on the video that the Firefly Funhouse has been abandoned. Cobwebs everywhere. It's in disarray. Nobody has been in the Firefly Funhouse since last year's WrestleMania. And the TV comes on and it's 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 fuzzy and it's pixelated. But we see this kind of new character with this with, with a, a long gray face with facial hair haunting. And then we come down and the door opens. The physical door that's in the arena now opens. And a bright blue light shines through. Talk about something out of a film. A bright blue light is shining through as if we're looking into the abyss. And that's when we see that old Wyatt lantern. And we see a, a, a huge figure emerge from the door. He's holding that lantern. And it's a figure who has a new mask. It's the same mask that we had just seen on the television set. Don't know what the mask is. Don't know what the mask means. But this figure removes the mask and we see that oh so familiar face not disguised by paint or latex or anything else just the flesh and bone of Bray Wyatt the crowd goes nuts Bray Wyatt looks at the camera and says I'm here and blows out the lantern we get the old Wyatt sound effect and we see a logo that is uh looks like uh on like an upside down uh butterfly silence of the lambs almost um a moth or something with a face that looks like it could be the fiend's face but it's all scratched out and we go to black and we wonder what we just saw here's what i saw and i will tell you that obviously as of this recording, I have not seen Monday Night Raw, so we won't yet be able to reflect on the answers that we get on Monday. But I think there were a couple of things that we have to look at, okay? I think that the human incarnations that we saw in the arena are very, very important to the story that's being told. Huskus, Mercy, Ramblin' Rabbit, Abby the Witch, and The Fiend. Now, what's very interesting is all four, one, two, three, yeah, four of these were puppets that were used by Bray Wyatt, who, when he got mad, would become the Fiend. But the Fiend has now been added to the ranks of these puppets. Let's go over one more time, as we've gone over twice before on the podcast, who these puppets are. Because there is the thing where people go, well, there's a rumor that Bo Dallas is coming back, and he could be. And there's a rumor that that the that, that Bray Wyatt's new faction will be human incarnations of these characters. And that's possible. But you have to understand that all of these characters already have a human. It's Bray Wyatt. These are all of Bray's insecurities. Huskus the pig is 
Bray Wyatt on the on on the NXT game show. Husky Harris. Huskus the pig is Husky Harris. Huskus the pig wears a wears a a, a sweatband on his head, and, and and thinks and he wears gym shorts. Huskus the pig thinks that he's athletic because he works out, but there's chocolate all over his mouth, and he's still so fat. This is the insecurity that Husky Harris lived with. Look at Husky Harris in the ring. He's incredibly athletic, but what do people see? Huskus, the pig boy. Mercy. Mercy the buzzard. The reason he's a buzzard is because this is the first incarnation of Bray Wyatt. Follow the buzzards. This is Bray Wyatt coming out in the Hawaiian shirt. That's why Mercy wears that shirt. This is Bray Wyatt coming out in the hat. This is Bray Wyatt sitting in the rocking chair. Why is he called Mercy the buzzard? Because Bray's insecurity over the fact that the original Bray Wyatt character was very uh, uh, similar, I'll say, to the Waylon Mercy character played by Dan Spivey. Waylon Mercy was a Southern con man that was based off of Robert De Niro's character in Cape Fear. A lot of comparisons were made to Waylon Mercy for those of us that have been watching as long as we've been watching when Bray Wyatt first came out. Bray Wyatt wants to be an original. He doesn't want to be a, a, a copy of something that came before. That's where Mercy comes in. That sort of, that sort of uh, uh, insecurity of, of not being an original. So what does Bray do as a character? Well, he tries to get away from the traits of Waylon Mercy. Bray tries to get away from that and, and do his own thing. And he starts to tell these long-winded stories and these, these, these cut these promos that you can only really understand if you really listen to and dissect every word. And even then, you still might not really know what's going on. And people start to go, I don't know about this Bray Wyatt and his rambling promos. I don't know what he's talking about anymore. I don't, I don't even think he's talking about anything. What kind of promos were they? His rambling promos. Ramblin' Rabbit is that next incarnation of Bray Wyatt on the main roster, trying to take people on this journey that maybe a lot of people weren't ready to go on. And why? Well, in Bray's most insecure place, because he's the Ramblin' Rabbit. You know, we kept hearing about Sister Abigail and we almost, thank God it was canceled at the last minute, but we almost got to a point where Bray Wyatt might portray Sister Abigail himself. That's kind of towards the end of the evolution of that version of Bray Wyatt. That's Abby the Witch. And what's the next incarnation of Bray Wyatt after that? Well, that's The Fiend. The Fiend is now... On this list, the puppets to me were not just the insecurities of Bray Wyatt because the, ultimately the Firefly Funhouse was a, 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 a journey into the, into the labyrinth of the darkest parts of your mind. So you're going to find your insecurities there. But also when you look at it, Huskus, Mercy, Ramblin' Rabbit, Abby the Witch, those are the ghosts of Bray Wyatt's past. Those are the ghosts that he leaves behind, but our ghosts follow us everywhere. So what I found really interesting is seeing The Fiend 
in the crowd with all those other entities that were once puppets puts the fiend on the list of the ghosts of Bray's past. The fiend is now something that represents a part of Bray Wyatt that is no longer who he considers himself to be. So who does he consider himself to be? I don't know, but what I do know is that Bray Wyatt changed his Twitter name to Wyatt Six many, many months ago, a long time ago. Wyatt Six is Bray's Twitter name. Huskus, Mercy, Ramblin' Rabbit, Abby the Witch, and The Fiend make five. Does Bray make six? Is Wyatt Six the faction that Bray has built inside of his mind? Is Bray ultimately, as a human being, just an amalgamation of all the personalities he was in the past combined with who he is today. Is that who this version of Bray Wyatt is? Is that why, is that the Wyatt six? I don't know, but it makes sense to me. It's very compelling. Bray has had this thought in his mind for a long time because that logo that flashed on the screen last night at the end of that vignette, not even vignette, at the end of his return. That logo is Bray Wyatt's Twitter profile picture, which wouldn't be that remarkable if not for the fact that he made that his Twitter profile picture at the end of May. At the end of May, Bray made that his Twitter profile photo. When Vince McMahon was still in charge of WWE, Bray Wyatt made that his Twitter profile photo. Has this been in the works since then? I doubt it. Has this been something that's been in Bray's head since then? Probably. Maybe this is something that he envisioned playing out in WWE or AEW or cinematically somewhere. Who knows what story we're telling with Bray right now. But what I do know is that this is clearly uh, uh, a, a coming of age everything that Bray Wyatt has done to get him to the point that he is today. And I can't wait to see it all. I can't wait. We're definitely going to see it this week and as the weeks progress, and I'm sure I'll make more uh, videos and podcasts about it. If you're not yet subscribed, go to youtube.com slash notsamwrestling uh, to check out all the videos that I'm posting. And I've decided today to do something I've never done before. Separate this podcast into two separate shows. If you liked the breakdown of Extreme Rules, I can guess that you're going to like my conversation with MJF. I'm not even going to hit a close here. I'm not even going to give you a piece of production on the way out because I want you to go to wherever you got this show from and probably either right above it or right below it you'll see 416B, which is my interview with MJF.